0: More specifically, we'll be looking at the phrase or a a gift of the Holy Spirit. And I know very well how it's been in the past for the, oh, probably about 40 years that I've been listening. And no, I'm not just 40 years old, as has been pointed out other occasions. But I I realize how controversial it is or how emotional it can be with many individuals. And if you know me, you know I'm not looking for a lot of controversy or arguments. But I think there are ways that we can look at this and look at several different sets of context and see what the Bible says about itself. I believe the Scriptures many times are the very best lexicon for the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the very best commentary for the Scriptures. I'm not saying other helps are not good. They are or can be, but we need to rely more upon this what the scripture says about itself and of course during this topic and when the Q&A come up I certainly don't claim to have all the answers and even my answers will not satisfy all the people and I've never seen a situation where that happens with any one person hardly in any of these uh, these topics but let's just all get out our bibles in whatever form you have it whether in paper or on screen and just like for us to look together at several different passages. beginning in Acts chapter one. If you think about these things being preached, or maybe the first time that they were being put into print, as Luke was writing this, we need to remember when it comes to this book of Acts, as we call it, that it was not written in chapters and verses. It was not written topically necessarily. But it does go through with a flow. Luke was the one writer. Yes, I believe Luke was an inspired writer. But still, he wouldn't be jumping around with different ideas and using the same phrases and the same words within the same subject matter. So let's think about things like this as we look. And of course, our topic being the Holy Spirit. Look in Acts chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, as he begins, he says, "...the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which He was taken up after He, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom He had chosen." What kind of reference is there to the Holy Spirit in this place? Was the Holy Spirit totally inactive? Was the Holy Spirit a part of the Godhead that you would just have to tell about or was there evidence of His presence? So think about those kinds of questions or the evidence of the Spirit as we look through. In verses 4 and 5 it says, And being assembled together with them, He, being Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father which He said, You have heard from Me, for John truly baptized with water, But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And of course, we're not ignorant of the happening in Acts chapter 2 with the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the reference to Him there as well is something that was very evident. The people could see there was very specific evidence of His work. As we continue on in verse 8 as He continued to speak and prepare His disciples. He spoke to them where they were asking questions about certain things or about the kingdom. But He explained to them in verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Again, He tells them about what's coming. He had promised them the Spirit coming unto them from John chapter 14, 15, and 16. Over and over we can remember the references there to the Spirit coming and His work of inspiration, divine memory, and also divine foretelling or prophecy. So, again, we see what kind of reference there is to the Holy Spirit even in this place. And we continue on. In chapter 2, then we know what happens. It's the fulfillment of this power coming upon the apostles. After their choosing Matthias, here in verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So again, Luke didn't put the verses and the chapters in, but that would have continued to flow. He had named the apostles, Matthias was one of them, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We remember that account. We see the reference, we know what's taking place. There was miraculous proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit. There were the miracles taking place. In verses 5 through 12, this had gotten the attention of all the people. There are those from many different nations. And they heard these men, these Galileans speaking. And they heard all of these supposed unlearned men speaking in their own home languages. Again, tongues, the amazement, proof of the power... That had come upon them. So, as we look on down, finally we know that the Apostle Peter got the opportunity to speak to the people. Somehow, after the initial excitement had worn down, he got their attention and he was going to start teaching them. In verse 14, it says But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So the apostle Peter points out the source of all of this excitement and all of this attention. And he says, and this had been prophesied long ago by Joel. And he identifies these different things or he points out ways to identify the fulfillment of that prophecy. And again, we see the coming of the Spirit and we see his work and we see that there was visible and even audible proof. And we see the reference there, of course, is miraculous. He goes on even to give further credence to what he is teaching them and what he is saying. In verses 25 through 31, he speaks about what David had said. And of course, he identifies David as a prophet. And it doesn't specifically say here in Acts that David was guided by the Holy Spirit. But I don't know who would argue with that. Because we are taught 2 Peter 1 and verse 21 how holy men of God or prophets spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. David wasn't just sitting back and guessing, but it is fulfilled prophecy. And that's how men were able to prophesy long ago. So again, every single reference we see as it goes along is miraculous. There were things in all these things that... Peter was pointing out, as he mentions in verse 33, he says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. The proof of the Holy Spirit was something that could be seen and it could be heard. And it was things, they were things that were astonishing the people. And then, of course, we find the conviction of the people that Peter was preaching to, that they had crucified Christ, the very one that they had crucified, God raised from the dead, and He's now sitting on the right hand of God. It cuts them to their heart. As we know in verse 37, they want to know what they need to do. And Peter says, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What would a person think? If they had seen, they had heard, or they had read for the first time, and then they see verse 38, what would they expect? We won't answer that right now. I hope that we, it will be answered, but won't just draw a conclusion to that right now. You know, something we need to remember is that neither Joel and his initial prophecy, nor Peter, as he repeats the prophecy here in Acts 2, Indicate in any way that everything in the prophecy would be fulfilled or take place that very day. Neither one of them said that. Neither one of them said that everything would happen that very day. And there's other examples of things like that where everything isn't completely clarified. Everything doesn't happen just in the way that we may initially think it when we see or we read a particular passage. in for example, in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we know that John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness. He was preaching his baptism of repentance. And he shows how even he, of course, was a fulfillment of prophecy. So all these things were taking place. People were coming to be baptized. And of course, he was pointing forward, wanting to get the attention upon Jesus. In verse 11, He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Look at what John the Baptist said. He names three different baptisms. One of them... That he was administering at that particular time. Baptism unto or for the remission of sins, of repentance, that the Apostle Paul points out later looks forward to the coming of Jesus. And then he is speaking about Jesus coming, that Jesus it would baptize with the Holy Spirit, and then the baptism of fire, which within the context is judgment. One of those people all those people thought it was going to happen immediately. John, in that little verse, he covered a lot of territory. The territory that we're standing in right now because a judgment hasn't come. He might have made it sound like, of course we know, that his baptism is being offered to all of Judea, all the Jews to try to bring them back to Christ. But then he mentions the baptism with the Holy Spirit that maybe a lot of them thought, I don't know what that is, but I want it. But we know that that was limited. But it wasn't explained at that time. Same way with the prophecy of Joel and Peter's repetition of it or explaining it even more. He doesn't indicate the exact time period or how long it may take for some of those things to be completely fulfilled. It wasn't until Acts 21, about 25 years later, when we see Philip's daughters prophesying. First time we have the exact written record of that. But everything doesn't happen on the timetable in the way that we would normally think of it. Or even with it being offered to the Gentiles, those who are far off, as the Apostle Paul identifies them in Ephesians 2. And we know that that took place being directly given to them in Acts chapter 10. So we can't look at this and and insist that everything happened completely from that prophecy on that very day. But we're going to continue on. We're going to jump to chapter six in Acts chapter six. This still being a few days, a few years on down the line, we realize that there were some men needed for a special work. The church was there, and the a problem came to the eyes of the apostles that some of the widows weren't being taken care of in the right way. And they decided that they were going to appoint a certain number of men. The people themselves, the members, were to choose certain men, but they could only be chosen from those who had certain characteristics. And one of those characteristics, or one of those things, he said that they must have, he said that they must be full of the Holy Spirit. How would they know if they had the Holy Spirit in this place? Well, one thing that we find as it continues on, like Stephen being one of them, we know according to verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. He had to be full of the Holy Spirit. He was able to prove that in this case by performing wonders and signs or perform miracles. And we know how that continued on. He continued to preach to those that were there in that place. And his sermon continued on in chapter 7. We know his preaching and his hard line on the Word of God and the need for them to change their way came about or brought on then his martyrdom. But in verse 55 here in Acts chapter 7, it says, And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's not something you can do every day. He he had an inspired vision. It points out how he was full of the Holy Spirit. How do you know? He spoke of what he saw. He spoke of something that was extraordinary. Something that was different. And he explained what he saw. And of course that just enraged the people even more. In Acts chapter 8. There's another man that was one of his fellow workers from chapter 6 named Philip. Philip had to fulfill or have the same kind of qualities or qualifications as Stephen had. Was Philip able to do anything? Well, we know in verses 5 through 7 here in Acts 8, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles that he did." unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. He was full of the Holy Spirit and he's able to prove it. He was performing miracles to all the people. We know he continued to preach. The people were converted due to his preaching. Both men and women believed and were baptized. And of course we know that that is very important. But he continued on, they were baptized, and we're told about Simon. Simon that I like to refer to as Simon the ex-sorcerer. He didn't continue in his old practices. But it Simon himself also believed, in verse 13, And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So still there, there were those proofs. There is the evident evidence of the things That was being spoken of here and things that were being done. In verse 14, we need to listen very carefully. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they came down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of Of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when we read along in this and remember the context in every place and look at it closely here, what does it say? It said they'd been baptized. Peter had already identified the the reason for baptism. But it does go on to say, but they had not received the Holy Spirit, they'd only been baptized. Sometimes people stop right there and say, wait a minute. But within the context, it's talking about the miraculous gifts. It's talking about miracles. Okay, if you want to stick with context, remember all the references to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 and verse and and chapter 2 also. So this is just what Luke recorded. He said that the apostles came and that the Spirit had not fallen upon any of them, they had only been baptized. And they came and laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that upon anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to them, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. And we're not continuing on with the problem that Simon got himself into there. But this phrase, going back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, we can read many authorities on Greek grammar and say, gift of the Holy Spirit means the Holy Spirit is the gift. That construction can mean just that. That the Spirit or the object there is the gift itself. But not every time. In this particular place, we see the very same construction, only it is gift of God. They're not saying that God himself or God the Father is the gift. They were talking about something miraculous. Again, keeping with context. And most would point that out here about that particular phrase. So, I believe we can agree with that that it was something miraculous, Simon saw miracles and signs that were done. Verses 14 through 16 just make very plain statements about what was and what was not received. The Word was received, they obeyed the gospel. It says that the Spirit was not received, and we see the proof of the Spirit being received through miraculous gifts. And then the same thing is being described by the gift of God. There's no big distinction made through any of these passages between gifts of the Spirit or the gift of God, like in this place, or the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at context. We see what was being spoken of here as Peter had his discourse even with Simon. But Peter said, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. So it was, he was wanting to purchase something that could be visible, something that was miraculous. And this is what they called it, the gift of God. So we see in each of these places the context, we see what is being said, and maybe it's given us a clearer picture about our phrase back in Acts 2.38. Maybe not, but maybe it does. Well, even later here in Acts 8, we know that the Spirit speaks directly to Philip in verse 29 in reference to the eunuch. It says, join yourself to the chariot. There's a direct operation. There is inspirational instruction being given to Philip. We remember the story about the eunuch, how he is taught, he is converted, and afterwards then, as we see in the very end, very end of this account, that the spirit called him away and the eunuch didn't see him anymore. And I don't know if that was just further information that the spirit gave to Philip saying, now, Get out of there. You've got some other work to do and he just left. Or I don't know if it's some kind of supernatural or inspirational transportation that he gave him by picking him up and putting putting him somewhere else. But still we see the reference to the Holy Spirit being miraculous. Whatever it was, it was a direct direct inspiration and a direct touch in that way. Acts chapter 10 If you sure most remember what happens Here in Acts chapter 10, finally the gospel is being taken directly to the Gentiles. This being Peter being sent to Cornelius. Cornelius wasn't informed of anything by the Holy Spirit. An angel told told him what to do in order to arrange a meeting with Peter. We're not told that it was the Holy Spirit that really directed Peter, but it says he did see a vision. He had an inspired vision. That gave him some information that he was pondering over and prepared him for the coming of those servants to then go and be with and to preach to Cornelius and his household. So here, this is some years later, some years down the line, at least, probably at least a decade from the day of Pentecost. So it goes along and finally the Jews or the Gentiles are being preached to. Those who are far off are being reached. It's Almost like preparation needed to be made. But we remember how the Apostle Peter found a lot of people gathered together there in Cornelius' house. Won't go over just all of those details. There Peter had spoken about why normally he wouldn't go into a Gentile's house, but he understands now he can and he should. In verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. There's the exact same phrase in the original Greek, in English, It could have been unplugged from Acts 2 and 38 and just plugged into this place. It's the very same phrase. And you remember, it's the same writer writing the same book within the very same context about the Holy Spirit. So would he be using the very same phrase in the same context on the same subject in different ways? I think it's a question to to kind of ponder. So... It was evident to all those and those believing Jews as well that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even upon these Gentiles. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. There is the proof. There was evidence. Like Peter had said before, they could see it and they could hear it. They knew it was there. Then Peter answered, Can anyone for bed water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So we see this being referenced. He doesn't talk about different kinds of ways of receiving the Spirit. He doesn't identify a miraculous reception over a non-miraculous reception. We see that Peter starts explaining these things as well whenever he went back home and the Jews were asking him about going to the Gentiles. In chapter 11, beginning verse 15, in his explanation he says, "...and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit." If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? So he goes over it again. We see he ends up even using one of the very same examples that John the Baptist did long ago. Peter didn't mention the baptism with fire. But still, he puts these things together about John's baptism... And then baptism with the Holy Spirit. And with each one of these references to the Holy Spirit, we continually see that there was proof, there was evidence. It wasn't just information being given oh, this is what's happened to you. You don't know it, but I'm telling you this. But there is something that could be seen, something that could be heard, something where there was evidence, proof of the reception. So it would seem as though context and logic demands when practically every reference shows the miraculous, why would Acts 2.38 be different? Why would it be a completely different case? A completely different meaning when the identical phrase can be found in countless places and it's agreed the other places are miraculous. I know one of the questions that would be going through an individuals minds would be then what does it mean to us and I plan on us getting to that as well but there is another example that we'll look at before we leave just some of these general passages in acts in acts chapter 19 we've talked about this some within the study these men that were found and Paul started starts quizzing them about their baptism. They were men that were open open to the teaching of the scriptures. They were men interested in God, but seemed like there was something lacking. Paul said in verse 2, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" So they said to him, "We've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit." And that was as was pointed out the other day, there are a few different translations that point out or include. We don't know whether or not there is the Holy Spirit being given or has been given. Not so much that they'd never heard of the concept of the Holy Spirit, but that he had been offered or received to this time. So that was, but that was their answer. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So They said to John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on Him who would come after Him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Remember back in Acts 8, they had been baptized, and before the apostles got there, it said they'd only been baptized, they had not received the Spirit. It just said they had not. Won't say in what way, it just said they hadn't. But when the apostles got there and laid hands upon those in Samaria, there was proof when they received the Holy Spirit. And what was that? It was miracles. And here was proof that they had received Him as well. They spoke with tongues. And prophesied. So I think we can see some consistency, even if one has a problem in accepting it to this point, but we can see a consistency in the topic of the Holy Spirit, his reception, and when or if there is any proof of someone receiving the Holy Spirit. And about each case, we see how there were miracles. But still, the idea of gift of the Holy Spirit means the Spirit himself. Well, we see that that phrase doesn't always work. The phrase of the gift of the Holy Spirit or the gift of God in these examples we've looked at has been the proof or it's been proven with miracles. Very same type of phrase, Ephesians 2 and verse 8, speaks of salvation, which is the gift of God. In Romans 6.23, it speaks about the gift of God, which is eternal life. And these two different examples here of gift of are, I think, are very interesting. Because many will talk about the different words for gift. They'll say, oh, well, that one word for gift, the Dorea, well, that's always more in reference to the non-miraculous indwelling of the Holy Spirit, like in Acts 2.38, and then the charisma is the miraculous gifts. Well... In Romans 6.23, that's the charisma of God. And he says that's eternal life. And there are other examples in showing how really we can't limit the vocabulary of inspiration. There are times and places where the words are used interchangeably. Yes, we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the word charisma is the one that's used in reference to all the miraculous gifts. But there are times that the words are changed, are interplaced. I could say, I gave you a present. I gave you a gift. I gave you a token of my appreciation. We have a broad vocabulary. Don't try to limit the Holy Spirit. So that is not just a a way to tie down a specific position. But another thing I'd like for us to look at in thinking back again in Acts chapter 2. Remembering the context there, the context what had been spoken of, how the Holy Spirit had been referenced, everything that was going on, and then you get to verse 38 and speak about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at Mark 16 along with Acts 2. We know Mark 16, beginning in verse 15. Mark 16. Go unto all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs shall follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents... And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Who will be able to do this? Those who believe. Those who believe and are baptized. Do we teach people today that they can expect those miraculous gifts after they believe and are baptized? No. Because it doesn't apply. And again, remember how the, the Scriptures were arranged It wasn't until around the 14th, 15th centuries that they started being divided up into chapters and verses. So the way they are arranged had some logic or planning behind it, but they were not inspired. I wonder how it would have been if the first part of verse 17 had been linked with the latter part of verse 16 in Mark 16. Then it would have sounded much more like Acts 2 and verse 38. What if the latter part of verse 38 in Acts chapter 2 was linked more with verse 39? Then it would have sounded much more like Mark 16. So we see, we still have to be looking very closely and see context. Let the Scriptures define and comment upon the Scriptures. People still get emotional. They'll get upset. Say, so, well, how can you take that away? How can it not be true? Isn't the Spirit supposed to be dwelling in us? The Scripture says He does. Now you may be thinking, O'Brien, oh, you have two big different sides of your mouth that you speak out of. But no, I don't think so. We know the Scriptures teach that. and one, Of course, one chapter that is favored And teaching this is Romans chapter 8. We are taught how the Spirit does dwell within us. But you know, God is to dwell in us. And Jesus is to dwell in us. And yes, so does the Holy Spirit. But let's look at something else that's interesting in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. In what I consider to be the true Lord's Prayer here in John 17. Toward the latter part of his prayer, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, for one, we know that all of us collectively as Christians do not literally and physically become one kind of conglomerate person. We know it's talking about unity and harmony and true fellowship, a relationship. And Jesus says, we are in them, Father. But he also says, they are in us. All in using the same kind of terminology and the same descriptions. So how can all that be? Is it something that's weird and mysterious? No. Let's talk about the proper relationship, our complete submission unto deity. And in that way, we do have deity in us, and we are within the realm of their fellowship. You know, there's another way we can look at it, and we can consider it, because we use this kind of terminology all the time. And I'm sure we can all relate to it. You know, some years ago, I made a comment to someone in a discussion. It, it was in a, a serious type of discussion. And it was with an older preacher that knew my, knew my father very well. And he kind of stepped back and he, he grinned. The preacher did. And he says, that's not you talking. That's Bernice Burns talking. But you know what? Neither he nor I thought for one second that my father, my father's spirit, came from the ground, got inside of me, and started talking instead of me. What was it? It was the influence of my father. It was myself taking on the characteristics and the mannerism of him. Through what? Through influence. And we say stuff like that all the time. It scares our children when all of a sudden they get a little bit older and they start saying, oh no, I'm turning into dad. We know what they mean. Taking on the characteristics, being molded and influenced by it. So if people can have that kind of influence upon other people, think about the influence of God through His living and all-powerful Word when we submit to Him. He's in us, we're in Him, we're all in each other. It's the proper relationship that we have. We let Him take over and we allow Him to be the guiding force. We have the armor of God mentioned in Ephesians Ephesians 6. When on verse 17 we see that tool that is used. The sword of the Spirit. And we can do things like that. We have God working upon us in that way. You know, I, back home I have some trees and woods around. I have a little wood burner and I'll cut wood and split wood and stay warmer in the winter. And I can say, you know, I split all that wood myself. I split that by hand. This didn't do it. Use a chainsaw and a maul. Use means. Use means to accomplish the work. God uses means, powerful means. And we can understand it. We just need to submit to it. We need to be careful that we don't start trying to insist upon something that God didn't offer, but He provided something that works. And He always provides something that works. But we can't expect more than He offers. And we won't read it right now. In Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 6, we have a perfect picture there where Paul describes inspiration and how the benefits goes to everybody. He was inspired to write those things concerning the mystery of Christ. As I write it down in a few words, when you read it, you'll know what I know. In short, that's what he's saying. He received it directly, he wrote it down, and then the others could learn it in a natural means. But it was the same knowledge. It was all working. They were ingesting this living Word. They had the influence of the Spirit living and working in and through Him. Later, in Ephesians, since Paul was giving them all of that information, he is able to tell them in chapter 5 and verse 17, he says... Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It was a command. You understand these things. How could they do that? Well, again, he had given it to them. In verse eighteen, he says, "Don't be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit." Uh huh. Got you now. Be filled with the Spirit. And he told them how. There are the following verses in Ephesians 5 shows a lot of things they were to practice. Things that they were to do. Maybe a few things they weren't to do. But still they were refining and they were following the divine instructions. And in that way they were doing what? Taking on the characteristics of the Spirit. In his letter to the Colossians, which is quite a bit a sister letter, married letter to the Colossians as he wrote to the Ephesians, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then with the same instructions following on how to do that. Was he teaching something completely different? No. He is still teaching the proper relationship through submission to the will of God. We're not being shortchanged. We're not being shortchanged at all. But we're being told and taught how to have the character- characteristics and the qualities of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 21-23. Is he talking about miraculous things there? No. Are any of these other places mentioning anything miraculous? No, other than Paul saying he had miraculous inspiration. But he says, I'm writing it down and you can have the same understanding. We'll see that the further you go on through the New Testament and in the refining, the teaching, the correcting, the, the edification of the church... Less and less has ever been said about miraculous. Anything miraculous. It's Here it is. Do it and practice it. It goes from miraculous to natural. And that's the way things have been. God started everything with a show of His unlimited power. But right after He created it, He created it for it to be sustained and continue naturally. Naturally. And it continues like that today.